Hello, everyone. This is Mike Grandinetti, and welcome to a very special episode of this Disruptive Innovation podcast series. This is the first time that we're broadcasting from sort of the, the height of the coronavirus uh, pandemic that has completely shut down our entire country, as well as cities and countries across the world. It's a time when all of us need to pull together and, you know, think about helping one another and being part of a supportive global community. So I can't think of a better guest to have join me today than Hala Hanna, who is Managing Director of MIT Solve, actually Managing Director of Community of the Solve at MIT organization, an incredible platform that is fostering innovation to address a wide range of social, environmental, health, education, and prosperity oriented issues. Hala, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Mike, and thanks for coming to the studio in, in this time of social distancing. Well, you know, I really thought that this was a story that would be very inspiring to my listeners and and ideally to, you know, the global audience that you're looking to impact. So, you know, quite frankly, um, I couldn't imagine not doing this. And Hala, maybe as we start, I know we're going to dig in somewhat deeply uh, to uh, your background and, and certainly the wonderful work that you and your team are doing at Solve. But just very quickly, can you describe what Solve's mission is and and the kind of impact that you're hoping to have in the world today? Yeah, so Solve is an initiative of MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And our mission is to solve uh, world challenges, you know, small things. Uh, solve is a marketplace for social impact innovation. And uh, through open innovation, we find incredible tech-based, social entrepreneurs from all over the world. And we bring together MIT's innovation ecosystem and a community of member organizations that can fund and support these entrepreneurs to help them drive lasting and transformational impact. I know we're going to talk more about this. Uh, just in, in big numbers, we have 130 of those innovators, the Solver teams. We have uh, an equal number of member organizations that support them. And over the past three years that we We've existed. We've um, uh, had a four, facilitated the commitment of fourteen million dollars uh, in uh, support to these uh, innovators. That's great, and I know you know just an infinite number of inspirational stories of innovators from around the world that you've helped to enable, empower, and and grow with their impact. And we're going to dig into that, but before we do, right? This is um, you know innovation ultimately is a people-oriented endeavor. And you're someone who's been on a mission from what I gather since you were a young girl, right? You grew up in Lebanon during the time of the Civil War, and I know that it impacted you greatly. Um, so can you take us through a little bit of your early history from the time that you were a young girl through your educational experiences, both at the American University of Beirut and then as you've moved on to the States? Because it seems like you've had a singular focus to you know, bring a positive impact to the world through your educational experiences. I think you said it right that being born during a civil war in Lebanon definitely played a big role in um, the the orientation. My parents are also both doctors, so there was uh, they modeled for me what it is like to have a career that's more in the service of others. Uh, after a few years of homeschooling in Lebanon, I grew up watching a country in reconstruction, and it was a front row seat to what it looks like when 
um, you know, good governance or less good governance uh, impacts the whole population's access to resources and what kind of inequalities that builds into the system. Um, and so it, it was fascinating in the best and, and worst ways. And that definitely uh, led me to wanting to understand the mechanisms of that. So whether it was in uh, studying economics in undergrad or uh, international development uh, in, uh, in w when I came to the U.S. to study that, um, it was that quest for, you know, w what does it look like to make impact at a scale that is meaningful? Um, I had, I worked with um, nonprofits uh, at the local level and it was very rewarding because you could see, uh, you know, you could see how, a, how that mattered for one single family, uh, but it wasn't systemic in any way. And I think that was, this has been the kind of the pursuit that I've been after in some sense. That's great. And so eventually you wind up at the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard, right? Renowned school for people that um, are in the the universe that you are so deeply immersed in. What impact did being in that community have on your, you know, your thoughts about what role you might play in the world going forward? The Kennedy School is an, is an incredible uh, community. Uh, I w went there because I thought I wanted to do a PhD in public policy after having spent two years at the World Bank. Um, it was uh, the World Bank at the time. I think it started. It changed quite a bit now, but at the time it was very uh, hierarchical in the sense that if you didn't have a PhD, there was uh, very little, you know, uh, places for you to go within that institution. And so I, I wanted to study more of public policy and do a PhD in that. And then as soon as I got to the Kennedy School, within the first semester, uh, the Arab Spring started, and so I was seeing, you know, a whole region that was so stagnant since you know, decades, um, finally been being shaken to its core. And uh, I, it just dawned on me how fast the world is changing. And that seven years studying one topic was just uh, too much time. And I wanted to be part of the action, um, or at least contribute in some way. Um, and so that's, that's what led me to, uh, to then, you know, take yet another master's yes. um, at, at the Kennedy School. And I, I shifted my focus after that to uh, focusing much more on leadership, negotiation, communication, those kinds of soft skills that I think the Kennedy School is uniquely placed to um, imbue on someone. That's great. And, you know, you're very much a global citizen. So you've, you've you know, you grew up in Lebanon, you came to the U.S. to study, you know, we will talk about other postings along the way in Geneva, but you had a, an opportunity to go to Liberia, which is a, a pretty uh, daunting kind of experience, I would think, for a young single woman. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, Liberia, if you can, and, and what led you there, and, and to the extent that you can share some of the lessons, um, you know, from that that experience that may have shaped you going forward. Yes, well, I would say what led me to Liberia is probably hubris and, and thinking that because I had a little bit of a taste of um, of having grown grown in a uh, in a post war country that I could um, relate or understand the Liberian experience of uh, their own uh, post war reconstruction period, uh, and I was very quickly. Um, uh, you know, faced with with my limitations, um, the Liberian uh, president at the time, President um, uh, Johnson Sirleaf, and uh, her minister 
planning were both graduates of the Kennedy School, so there was an exchange program there. Um, and it was extremely interesting to try to apply my public policy, fresh public policy knowledge from the Kennedy School and my quantitative skills to, um, you know, uh, a, a very different environment. I mean, li Liberia is uh, at the bottom of lots of listings in human development and, uh, um, uh, you know, poverty indices and all of this. And I, I think, you know, the, the, the main lesson is that good intentions are not enough and that there is no replacement for uh, local knowledge and no local capacity building um, and, and development to really, um, you know, take a country to the next level. Absolutely. I mean, for many years, I taught in a master's in social entrepreneurship program, and many of my students were expatriates of, you know, governmental organizations or NGOs where there was great intention, but incredible lack of effectiveness. And the message I always delivered was, I need to turn you into an entrepreneur first and a social entrepreneur second. You need to have the leadership and the management skills as well as the hard skills to be able to create impact. And then you need to understand how to apply those skills, you know, in a local context. So I couldn't agree with you more. And so you, you graduate from Kennedy School, you wind up in Geneva with the World Economic Forum. Um, maybe just share a little bit of your experience there and how that continued to shape your worldview. That was the World Economic Forum is a fascinating place because um, the the reason I ended up there is, you know, by 2012, the Arab Spring was looking pretty, um, complex, let's say. It wasn't it wasn't clear what direction it was going to take. And uh the I, I joined the World Economic Forum as the lead for a program on the Middle East and North Africa. And so it was um a fascinating exercise in how do you curate a community of uh, of leaders and 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 you know of who's in power when when whoever is in when when the definition of power is changing on a weekly basis you know what are the topics that are uh, most top of mind or that are trending that you need to put on a global stage that is for example Davos the the annual uh, World Economic Forum meeting um, when when the reality on the ground is uh, is really you know changing by the minute and so it was. Um, it was a fascinating, very meaningful experience. And those were the first two years. And then I did two years as the chief of staff to the managing, one of the managing directors at the World Economic Forum, which was a fast track into what is it like to, um, you know, manage in a very complex matrix, um, you know, uh, and, and a good exercise of the skills that I learned at the Kennedy School in terms of, you know, uh, leading with little, um, uh, you know, um, uh, official power, but lots of um, uh, influence? Or how do you turn non-official power into influence? Right. Well, you know, and I love your agility because, you know, you've, you've lived on multiple continents and you've, you've gone from working in small local and regional nonprofits to pursuing a PhD, at least at some point in time. But there comes a point where as you're, you know, getting ready to perhaps exit the WEF, you decide to start your own company. Um, and forgive me, my Arabic is a little rusty, but halul, if mm -hmm. I haven't butchered that too badly. Tell us about the motivation to create halul and what the intention was at that time. 
Right. So the uh, so as the lead on program for the for the Middle East at the World Economic Forum during the Arab Spring, um, and and in its aftermath, it was a few things were happening. I mean, media was becoming a little more free in a lot of these countries uh, that didn't previously have um, anything but. Uh, state-controlled media, but at the same time, that did not necessarily lead to a more informed public. So there was this big gap between, you know, the 300-page uh, studies that international organizations would would publish that would not be very accessible to the audiences locally, um, and the, you know, some random Twitter accounts or Facebook or, you know, even local news. And so we, that's, that's the gap that we wanted to fill in informing the public on the most pressing policy issues that they were facing uh, in a way that was accessible and that was on the medium that they were already on, which was social media. So that was the idea behind Hulul. And we got... Um, uh, we, we got a big grant uh, during my time at the World Economic Forum. And so I uh, that was kind of the, the push to get me out of the door yeah. and uh, moved to Lebanon to set it up, um, to set it up from there and make use of the very talented um, uh, human capital that there is in Lebanon that, that really helped us uh, build this and, and um you know, get it going. Well, I have to say, I just love the the trajectory, right? It's like your destiny ultimately is to wind up where you are now at Solvit MIT. And the fact that you actually had the direct experience of creating a, you know, a social impact startup, if you will, right? As founder, as, as one of the, you know, one of the people that actually was able to raise this, the capital to get this going into help operate and grow it is just, you couldn't imagine better uh, training for someone who's now in your experience. So that being said, you know, you're, you're in Lebanon, you're, you're back home again, once again, having cycled through Cambridge, Massachusetts, Washington, DC, Liberia, and Geneva back in Lebanon. And now you're coming back around again for uh, yet another experience in Cambridge and, and you're being asked to come and join Solve at MIT. So take us through sort of how that outreach happened and what was it about that opportunity that drew you back to the United States and to this particular organization? Yes, a lot of stars aligned at the at exactly the right time for for me and my family, and it was you know the the move to Boston was just an evidence at that point, uh, including that uh, Alex, the executive director of Solve, had just joined the organization, uh, and it was, it's an organization that is uh, the idea is is by President Trife, the president of MIT, and um, and she was looking to build her team and a, a, a actually a classmate of mine from the Kennedy School uh, reached out saying, you must know people who could help Alex build Solve. And uh, I raised my hand for it. <laughs> I can do that. Um, so it was, it was a really, you know, the, the right opportunity at the right time. And indeed, as you're saying, it is also, it is a Goldilocks of a lot of things that I've looked for in a, in an organization and in a, in a position, because it is, it is an enabling organization where we select the most promising innovators and then we find the resources to help them be more successful. So they're the ones doing the work and we're the ones leveraging our network to help them. That's great. And take us a little bit through the genesis of Solve at MIT itself, because if, if I understand correctly, it started out as more of an event and, and, and turned into something much more permanent and much more long-term than that. Is that a correct understanding? So the 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 
first iteration of Solve in 2015 uh, was it's always it was always meant to be more than an event. And I think we, you know, when Alex came on board in end of 2016, we kind of rebooted the organization and hired the right team behind it to to bring that vision of President Reich to uh, to bear. And it was. The, the philosophy behind FOB is that ingenuity is equally distributed around the world, but opportunity is not. And if we wanted to solve today's very complex global challenges, I mean, look where we are now, we really need to bring everyone to the table. And this is, you know, this is what an institution like MIT wants to be like in the 21st century, a place where that helps democratize the ethos of experimentation that it's so well known for. And this is why we are a marketplace. We are a community. Um, we, you know, we are an open innovation platform. Anyone, anywhere can take part in solve in some way or another. And then if you're one of the most promising ones, we will find a way to help you. That's great. So this is a good time to take a real quick pause. Um, and we'll be back in just a moment or two with Halahana, and we'll continue this fascinating discussion of MIT Solve and the impact that it is having and will continue to have on the world going forward. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this session and any of the previous episodes, find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating at the end, please. Your support is what keeps us in your ears every week. Thank you. So welcome back, everyone. This is Mike Grandinetti with the Disruptive Innovation Podcast. We're having a great discussion with Halahana, who is the Managing Director of Community with Solve at MIT. And we're about to really now, in the second part of this discussion, do a deep dive on the work that Hala and the incredible team at Solve at MIT are doing, and also to talk about some of the incredible solvers, and we'll describe what a solver is, but the impact that they're having across a wide range of different domains. So Hala, you joined, and your original role was focused on economic prosperity and, you know, sort of within that wheelhouse. But within a year, you were promoted, and you're, you're basically heading community globally for all of their initiatives. Can you describe sort of the high at the high level what some of the the primary domains or initiatives are that you're focusing on at Solve? Because it's quite a it's quite a large number. Right. So Solve is organized along four pillars: uh, health, learning, sustainability, and economic prosperity. And we launch challenges across those four areas every year. Uh, we get you know, 1,500 applications from over 100 countries, and we select the most uh, promising ones. We build communities around those challenges, communities of organizations and individuals who have the resources and the knowledge to help grow uh, the, the innovators that we select, which we call the solver teams. Um, so we have, uh, I was telling you earlier, we have 130 of those solvers that we selected over the past three years, uh, an equal number of organizations that are uh, paying members of Solve uh, and that contribute in so many ways from uh, prize funding to address specific challenges or specific technologies or geographies within those challenges uh, to mentorship and uh, opening up their, in, engaging their employees into helping our solar teams. Um, and uh, our solar teams are impacting 16 million lives day in, day out throughout the world, throughout over 30 countries. 
So when you think about, as you said, you know, you get a significant number of applications and, and it's an incredibly rigorous selection process. What are the criteria that you use to determine who gets to become a member of the community as a solver team? What, what do they have to prove to you that they're, you know, they're, they're on a positive trajectory to contribute to that impact of 16 million lives each and every day? That's right. So we actually, um, we ask our, our application, we try to make our application as easy as possible because we know our entrepreneurs are busy. Those doing good work are busy. Uh, we also know that uh, opportunity of um, the accessibility of the language is important. And so we have uh, created an online course that allows uh, people to, uh, uh, you know, take a course in business and social impact planning. And when they're, as they're filling out the exercises of that course, they're actually filling out the equivalent of an application as well. Um, so that helps level the playing field a little bit between those of us who are used to the terminology and the frameworks of entrepreneurship um, as we know about them, probably your listeners are very familiar with. Um, uh, but we have very atypical uh, sober teams that have just as ingenuous of a solution that are doing just as good of a work on the ground. And we want them to be, um, you know, competing with equal chances of being selected as well. Uh, so we are looking, our uh, innovators are, I would say, 55% of them are for profit. 52% of them are women-led. Uh, so I always say, if you are if you can't find innovators um, who are tech innovators, who are women, you're just not looking hard enough because we know they are here and they're doing amazing work, just as good as anyone else. Uh, we, all of our organizations actually have already a pilot or a prototype. So it is beyond the idea. Uh, and they have proven their alignment to the challenge, uh, their ability to uh, promise to scale, uh, the fact they've thought through the, um, you know, the sustainability of their solution, um, and they have an innovative aspect to it as well. So, Hala, there's no question that if if um, people claim that they can't find great technical female founders. They are absolutely not looking hard enough. In fact, they're not looking at all. They're avoiding looking. So why don't we dig into a couple of uh, your solver teams right away? One that made a very strong impression on me is a company out of Southern California that is led by two Asian American women. And the name of the company is Bioselection. And Bioselection is looking to convert plastic ocean waste into useful material. Because we all know the ugly statistic that only about 10% of all plastic that is separated and moved to a recycling facility actually gets recycled. And so most of it winds up in the ocean. And I was so impressed by what these two young women are doing that I had targeted them to actually give a keynote speech at a woman in technology conference that I was helping to program in Silicon Valley later this summer until that conference, like pretty much every other conference on the planet, was canceled. So any thoughts or any insights or color you can share about these incredible two young women and, and what they're up to? Right. So, yes, Miranda and Nadine are terrific. Uh, one is a chemist, one is a biologist. They are figuring out how – they've figured out a chemical process to transform waste plastic into high-value industrial building blocks that can then be used to – build things instead of throwing them in the ocean. Uh, they are um, uh, 
they're they're really tackling that plastic challenge that we're all um, kind of grappling with by creating that novel way to recycle uh, a polyethylene. Uh, which is the top produced plastic. And they have partnerships with local city governments, which allows them to enter the PE recycling services industry, which is a huge industry. I think it's about over $250 million uh, just in the West Coast alone in the U.S. And uh, the products that they are able to create from that waste um, are a whole you know, revenue stream of nylon and uh, that, that's good for the 3D printing industry, for the footwear industry. Um, and so they really figure that out from, you know, two sides of the market, really. And, and they're just doing brilliant work. Yeah, and I love it. These were two young girls that went to high school together and have had a longstanding personal and now professional relationship. And they are, they're doing incredible work. Another company that maybe we can talk about is Early Bird. And, and Early Bird is an especially poignant company to talk about because they were due to join us today uh, before social distancing went into effect and we had to kind of shift our, our focus here. Um, but can you share a little bit about what uh, what Early Bird is doing? Because I think it's uh, very inspirational. Yes, and Carla and Nadine are, are the leader. Nadine was supposed to be with us today. I'm sorry that she's not because she would be able to speak to this in a, in a much better way than I could do. But uh, Early Bird is one of the selected cover teams from our early childhood development uh, challenge that we ran last year. They're a screening service that catches the earliest signs of breeding disabilities when really the brain is um, developing at such a past past scale or fast pace that any, you know, any week makes a difference. And this is particularly poignant for the United States where it's estimated that 65% of fourth of all fourth graders actually score below proficiency in reading. It's pretty shocking for an OECD country. Um, and most reading disabilities are identified too late when when children have already fallen behind their peers, where there's already uh, the, the the window for effective intervention has become very narrow and very expensive. And so there's also an additional layer of self perception of reading failure and negative responses that children have to deal with that makes them very vulnerable to feeling shame and and depressed and have low self esteem that then they carry throughout their life. That just gives you a sense of how urgent it is to uh, detect those signs very early on. Right. And, and so, please. So, so I guess, you know, what we've seen is two examples of founder, uh, female founder companies, um, you know, on the West Coast, bioselection, woman biologist, a woman chemist, and here in Boston, um, you know, Nadine, of course, has an appointment at Harvard Medical School. So we're talking about very deeply well-educated scientists that are engaged in very sophisticated work, right? This is not your typical NGO that we're talking about. These are people that are, um, you know, in the deep end of the science and tech pool that are working on this stuff. So very inspirational. Another company that, you know, I think is very topical is El Gramo. El Gramo is a company based in Argentina, and they were just named by Fast Company, one of the Bibles of the innovation economy. And their most recent issue, their annual most innovative companies in the world issue, as the most innovative, one of the, the most innovative out of the 10 that they selected of the top 10 of all companies in Latin America. And so Algramo is working on reusable packaging, and they've entered into relationships with 
major brands like Unilever and like Nestle. And they seem to be, um, you know, getting a tremendous amount of traction, you know, in Latin America, but working with global brands today. And we're going to start to see them starting to go global as well. So um, I know that the founder, I've seen him speak a few times. He speaks with incredible passion. Uh, can you maybe lend a little color to what you've what you've noticed with El Gramo? You did a great job there. I think what what what's really great here is that it's not just that it makes uh, consumption of fast moving consumer goods for those who are more cash constrained than us and so can't buy things in bulk, as by the way, most of us have been doing this week in preparation for this lockdown. Um, but this is really, uh, you know, making it much more affordable for um, uh, for people to buy in smaller quantities and uh, it addresses packaging waste. Um, so they have developed a smart reusable packaging that and IoT connected dispensers, uh, and and they've connected them with global supply chains so that you can consume without um, having all of this packaging waste. Okay, so we've spoken about three of your 130, and I know there are endless examples of innovators doing incredible work across a wide range of domains. And I guess if people are curious to see some of the other, uh, you know, solver teams, just go to the Solve website and, you know, you'll you'll find videos of each of these teams where they're giving pitches. Uh, and I think it's quite inspiring. So as we think about sort of your tenure now at Solve, what, how would you say uh, the organization has evolved from the earliest days of your arriving? What, what things have you learned and, and how have you perhaps changed course to improve your impact and your effectiveness. So this is a, this is such a good question. So we have, I mean, we started from um, having the backup of MIT is huge, and having the resources of MIT is incredible. Um, but as an in, as an initiative within MIT, we started from scratch. Um, and and just looking now at this bustling community that is uh, partnering with each other, uh, we have you know General Motors working with Levox to uh, integrate some of his technology into their potentially their driving cars, and just seeing those you know connections happening with industry titans and those small innovators or with innovators among each other is just so uh, gratifying and that's how we measure our impact really is how helpful we can be to our solver team. Um, uh, we have one thing that has been interesting is that we've been pretty, we're a very nimble team. And one of the things that we've been pretty responsive to is what our, um, our community is telling us. And so one thing that became clear is that our open innovation platform and the methodology that we use um, were very, in very high demand. And uh, so we had a few companies come to us and say, we love how you launch your challenges. We just have the specific issue and the specific geography uh, or the specific timeline. We'd love to, you, you know, do it with you, uh, but outside of the, of the cycle. And at first we were reticent, but we really, we, we, once we adjusted, this is now one of our um, big products that we run. It's custom challenges for clients. It's, of course, mission aligned. It's all for social good. Yeah. But it's allowed us to expand that marketplace into a, a third dimension in some way um, and to, in that sense, help our solvers even more. I love it. I mean, one of the one of the lessons I always try to convey to my my social entrepreneurship students is 
you don't have competitors, you have comrades in arms, right? And you should celebrate the fact that there are other people who are trying to solve the same problem and you should collaborate and share knowledge and share insights and share IP, right? It's not about getting the credit for who solved the problem. It's about we solve the problem together. So I think I love it. I love that you've open sourced the platform. And it, it, it leads to another question, right? Because there's been a lot of other organizations that have how to, the head of, you know, have had or continue to have um, programs to crowdsource social impact, right? One of them, Open IDEO, we'll talk about that one in more detail in a second, but Ashoka, Endeavor, the Skoll Foundation. And, you know, they all have their own approaches. And I know, you know, I was the person who sort of started the Open IDEO chapter here in Boston, Cambridge, and, you know, used a lot of Open IDEO methodologies in teaching my courses. Um, and I love what they, you know, what they stood for. But I think one of the, th- the the distinctions that I've seen between where Open IDEO has struggled and where you folks have continued to thrive is with Open IDEO, we could run a challenge or we could run a hackathon or a design sprint or a prototype scramble. But once that event was over, that energy dissipated and we couldn't harness that energy and turn it into long-term viable social impact ventures, right? And so I think that's one of the things that you guys are doing that's brilliant, right? There's there's a level of sustainability here, sort of, you know, double entendre intended. But when you think about so many of these for-profit accelerators, right, people graduate and they just go home. Is your approach that once you're a solver team, you're always sort of a part of this community and you're always going to be able to access mentorship and the and the benefit of the community? We follow our solver teams. By the way, all of these examples that you've mentioned are terrific organizations. We uh, we work with most of them in some way or another. The 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 solver program. Once you're selected, the intense part is for nine months. Yes. In the sense that we have you know the selection in September uh, during Solve Challenge Finals, which happens every year in New York around the United Nations General Assembly, and then we have uh, we do an in-depth needs assessment for everyone that's selected because the um, the support that we provide is pretty tailored. So there's uh, mentorship, there's a, a ton of introductions that have to other members of the uh, there's introductions to people on campus can be helpful. Um, and of course, there is the, uh, the uh, pre-committed uh, grant funding or prize funding that is also uh, dispersed along the way of those nine months. Uh, we've also just launched a social, um, our Solve Innovation Future, which is uh, super exciting. It's a um, philanthropic uh, venture vehicle that allows us to make direct investments in our Solver teams that are for profit and help them with a with a much more flexible type of capital um, uh, in their journey as well. And uh, so that's for the that's for the nine months. But the, both the funds and the way we continue to uh, follow our solver teams, uh, get their news, understand their needs, that continues way beyond those nine months. That's great. So as we sit here today, you're you're you've opened up applications, right? The application. Uh, window for the next cohort. Do you want to just maybe spend a minute or two talking about uh, what people might want to do if they're if they're captivated by our discussion today and they want to try to apply and become a part of the community of solvers for next year? 
Absolutely. So solve.mit.edu is the website. Our four challenges this year are around good jobs and inclusive entrepreneurship, learning for girls and women, sustainable food systems, and maternal and newborn health. So if you're working on one of these topics, please apply. And if you're working on anything related to health security and pandemics in response to the crisis that we are currently in, we are also asking the community um, for solutions around how the world can prepare for, detect, and respond to emerging pandemics and health security threats. Uh, happy to talk more about this, but um, we're very excited about um, all of these challenges and particularly the one around um, pandemics and, and create and increasing our health security globally. So what are the deadlines for the four more traditional um, domains that are a part of your annual process? And what is the deadline, if any, for the pandemic challenge? All of them, the deadline is June 18. Um, and then for selection uh, in September, on the 20th of September in New York for the 12th Challenge Finals. So we, from, the, from everything that we receive, we select the 60 uh, finalists that then join us in New York. That's great. And so, Hala, as we wind down our discussion, what are you most proud of in terms of your, you know, tenure with Solve at MIT? Is there one or two things that stand out for you that really make you smile when you think about, you know, the impact that the organization has had in the world? I know it's a tough question. So I, I really like this question, and I think it's become particularly salient in these very tough times. We're still adjusting as everyone, but I, I found two immense sources of resilience in our team and in our model. Um, so the team has just been, uh, obviously this week has been an adjustment for everyone in terms of figuring out how do we work together virtually, how do we continue to push for impact, even as uh, our software teams are dealing with um, very different challenges on the ground. Uh, and everyone has just been so quick to adapt and uh, take things in stride. And so I'm just so proud of, um, of our team. And, um, you know, each one of them is just doing incredible work. The other is our community, really, and the model that we've built. So we are, as we moved our event from an in-person event on campus at MIT to a virtual event that will take place on May 12th, um, uh, it's become clear how the response that we got from people when we told them, you know, this is going to be a virtual event or it's pointed, we're not going to see you in person, but we're going to make this great. Um, it just made us realize that we are, in fact, we're just built so much more than an event. We're really a community um, that wants to do real work together and, and have real impact. And that's just uh, means the world to me. I think we've curated a, a group of people and organizations that care about the same thing uh, as we do, which is to make a dent in those big global challenges that we're all facing together. That's great. Well, Hala, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know you're home uh, trying to you know, keep this community thriving. You're home with your family. Um, and I just want to commend you. I'm, I'm very inspired by your career trajectory and the work that you and the team are doing at Solve. It's great to be a small part of this community. I, I have had the privilege of being part of a lot of social impact and social innovation communities. I'm, I think the model that you guys have deployed is the right model. 
And um, I'm excited about the kind of impact that you're going to have in the future. I wish you and your family the best of health. And uh, I hope to see you at a solve event soon when this social distancing comes to an end. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mike. And thanks to your listeners. Uh, stay safe and well. Okay. This is Mike Grandinetti signing off with this episode of the Disruptive Innovation Podcast. If you like what you've heard today or what you've you've heard over the last 20 plus episodes, please rate us on your favorite podcast platform, whether it be Apple, Spotify, Anchor, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. <music> 